Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Do you need uh, a device to listen to stuff with? Do you know what I'm talking about? Those things that you put in your ears? Go to tweakedaudio.com. And when you do a, a purchase, you enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. That gets you 33% off of whatever you buy at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just All one right. time. Right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is maximally droll. This is just another mental construct. How's it going? How's the weather? Is your mood improving? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. I have a great show for you today. I just looked to my left and saw a spider hanging in a uh, suspended state. It's in it's uh, inanimate. It might be dead. I don't know what's going on. My guest today is Jung Yoon. Her uh, debut novel, Shelter, is available now from Picador. It is a, a tremendously well-reviewed book. The critics uh, appear to be unanimous in their feverish praise for shelter. It's the kind of reception that uh, I think as writers we don't dare to uh, even imagine. But uh, for Jung Yoon, it is a reality. It's happening. And you're going to hear all about it in just a moment. I should add that uh, it was a long road to publication. It wasn't all roses, which is uh, almost always the case. And uh, she was just a, a complete delight to talk with. So uh, that that's coming momentarily. I think before we get started, I, I'm going to read some tweets. I haven't done that in a really long time. I feel remiss. So I will read some tweets and then, uh, we'll do the interview with, uh, Jung Yoon. Does that sound good? Okay. So let's read some tweets. Here we go. Walked into coffee shop and saw that the crazy barista was working, pretended that my phone was ringing, answered it, then walked out. Movie about me going to space and panicking and dying called The Wrong Stuff. 
I just fell asleep in a Starbucks. The lady next to me at Starbucks just told me that when she was pregnant years ago, she once fell asleep for three hours in public. have decided to refer to this year exclusively in both writing and conversation as, quote, my super sweet 16. Just stood waiting for the bathroom in this restaurant with a line forming behind me for approximately 10 minutes before realizing that the bathroom was empty. Vegan Sports Bar. I feel like the last remaining member of a band after everyone else in the band has died should go on tour using the singular version of the band name, i.e., Paul McCartney touring as, quote, the Beatle. While holding slash looking at my phone, thought I heard my phone ring, and somehow not realizing I was holding my phone, began looking for my phone. just texted someone, drive safely, while driving. I just looked to my left and saw my dog in the ready position, staring at a balloon. I feel bad for the people who don't follow me. Resting existential horror face. I run a mad lab. <laughs> Feel the Brad. company to soften its image should rename itself oil lol when i was like 22 and in europe i had some swiss girl take a photo of me handwriting into a journal and i had a beard okay uh, all right. I think that's enough tweets. There you go, folks. Tweets from my at uh, Brad Listy Twitter account. That's kind of the account where I, I tweet.
tweet one-liners, and then the other people account is where I just shoot my mouth off, the at other PPL account. So at Brad Listy and at other PPL, if you care to follow. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Jung Yoon, her debut novel, Shelter, out there now from Picador. Uh, as I said, I had a great time talking with her. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Jung Yoon, and her novel, One More Time, is called Shelter. My father came to the U.S. one year before the rest of the family did, and originally we were supposed to live in Chicago, which has a huge Koreatown. And my dad, by the way, is a martial arts instructor, so his oh, idea wow. was it's the 70s and Taekwondo is really popular in the East Coast and the West Coast, so let's go somewhere in the Midwest. But when he got to Chicago, it was dirty, he said. It was really expensive. There was too much crime. And he basically thought, there's no way I can have my wife and my two little girls in this city. So someone told him about Fargo, and he went, and he liked it. And that's where we ended up joining him about a year later. He's a black belt in Taekwondo. He is a great grandmaster of Taekwondo. One he could of my, kick my ass. He could kick everybody's <laughs> ass. <laughs> how, old is the, how old is he now? He's going to be 75 in May. He could still kick my ass. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, that's what my husband always says. Did you grow up uh, practicing? No. Um, my dad didn't want to teach me or my older sister because in order to do that, he would have to be our teacher instead of our dad. Yeah. But I always wanted to learn. So I started taking classes when I moved out to the East Coast for college and was really terrible at it. Oh, you were? Yeah, that didn't carry. I was going to say, can you kick my ass? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I got up to a, a second degree black belt, but I don't think I really earned it. Um, I, I think I kind of got carried along because I... I accidentally made the mistake of telling my instructors who my dad was. What's your dad's name? Uh, Mu Young Yun. Okay, and and when you say grandmaster, is that is that the right title? Grandmaster. Great grandmaster. Great grandmaster. How many of those in the world are there? You could probably count them on your hands. Oh, really? Yeah. He's a so, badass. So I didn't understand that. So these people who I took classes from knew who he was, and I think they were kind of worried about like holding me back. You know, we better give this this lady a black belt. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I was just, I was a turd. I, I couldn't hit anything, kick anything. I was really terrible. Okay, so as a great grandmaster, is, is like, th this is something that, you know, he's winning tournaments? Or is it, you know what I'm saying? Like, what qualifies you? Years of study, um, students trained, and 
I, I'm sure there's some other part of it, but I know that those are the two biggest parts, that he was just in the business for so long and had trained so many black belts who then became instructors yeah. um, and, and had schools of their own. Has he ever been in like a live hand-to-hand combat situation? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And yeah. he used to do tournaments when I was younger and, you know, those karate kid-like tournaments and he would have students spar and then he would be sort of the halftime entertainment. So he would do like crazy things like, you know, break concrete cinder blocks with his head and he had a truck drive over him and what yeah he had a truck drive over him yeah he had a well also that's taekwondo <laughs> <laughs> wait no I'm, I'm getting that wrong he laid down on a bed of nails and had a ramp put on him and a motorcycle drew over drove over him the truck he actually just pulled with his teeth jesus okay yeah. well that's like uh your dad's a badass he is. He is. I'm really proud of him for was, that. Was he uh, strict? Was he... I mean, like, cause, like, I imagine if you're good at that stuff, you have to be, like, disciplined and, you know, but the fact that he didn't teach you guys seems to indicate that he wanted some separation between... Like, yeah. he wanted to be able to be, like, the nurturing dad. He wasn't trying to be your coach. Exactly. Exactly. I think he was more strict, as many parents are, with their first child. So my sister got the harder end of the stick. And by the time I came around, they were like, eh, you yeah. know, don't set anything on fire. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't hurt yourself. Yeah, exactly. Now, so what was your mom doing? Um, my mom owned a retirement home. Um, she bought that when I was about nine years old and that was what she did for 30 plus years of her life. Oh. Yeah, you grew she... up going, going there. Yeah. That's an intense environment. Completely. Especially for a child. Like that's a, that's an early introduction into human decay. Yeah. And it was, really uncomfortable for me when I was a young kid because a lot of these residents, it didn't seem like they saw their families all that often. Ugh. And I would ask my mom, like, why doesn't anyone come and get them for Christmas? Why doesn't anyone come and get them for their birthday? Um, and I was like the, the house puppy. You know how you bring a puppy into a senior center or yeah. and everyone wants therapy the dog. puppy? Yeah, I was like the therapy kid for a little bit. So I would walk in there and everyone would want to chat and do things and i i thought it was really strange yeah well and, and the thing too is like it's one thing to be somebody who is in need of a assisted living facility who's still got their faculties it's another thing when that starts to go or you have elders in there that are really just i mean because my grandmother ha- died of alzheimer's and i remember going to visit her she had to be in a home she mm-hmm. needed 24-hour assistance right and some of the people were hilarious and sweet and you know talk to you and then other people it was almost like you know zombie-like and you know, for a kid, especially, it's always uncomfortable. But for a kid, I remember being uh, startled by it. Mm-hmm. You know, it yeah. can be scary. It definitely was. And I think culturally, it was very strange because that's, you know, a, a huge building that is filled with old people who don't live with their adult children. That was not anything that I had ever encountered before I came to the US. I mean, in Korea, it didn't matter how miserable someone's elderly parents were they lived at home with one of the, well, the this, grown children and this uh, speaks to your novel yeah I, I didn't realize how much it had kind of filtered in but in retrospect yeah I, I was clearly thinking about it well and i think that the i gotta say i, I think that the korean uh way which is shared by other uh countries and cultures is yeah. uh, uh, healthier like to just discard i mean i understand like listen if, if you have a grandparent who has dementia or alzheimer's or something or some sort of really debilitating illness mm-hmm. That's too much. Mm-hmm. There is a point that you cross where it's too much for just the family to take, you know, to take on. But um, to just sort of ditch elders <laughs> into assisted care facilities or whatever uh, doesn't seem right. And I think that the value placed on youth in our culture 
is skewed to an unhealthy degree, which I just talked about on a recent uh, in a recent monologue. But you know, we need to appreciate our elders more. Is basically the point. That's true. Um, that's definitely true. Although. The flip side of that is that some people who are sort of discarded by their adult children, you have to wonder why. Yeah. I mean, it, it may not be because, you know. Should have been nicer. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, you never know. Well, and people can get selfish and it's a lot. The thing about it is that caregiving is a lot of work. And it's, it's not only a lot of work physically in terms of time constraints and all that kind of stuff. But it's also emotionally demanding. Right. And I think some people just don't have the energy or you know, just over, they're overwhelmed by the other aspects of their life, you know, which I, I can understand. If you've got job stress right. and you're trying to make a living and then you've also got a 84-year-old mother. And who, a seven-year-old child. And a seven-year-old child. Then right. you have, it's like another kid, really, mm -hmm. in terms of like what you've got to, what you've got to do. You've got to feed them. You've got to bathe them. You've got to be there for emotional support. It's mm -hmm. a lot. So, you know. I don't know what the answer is. I feel like almost like there should be some sort of subsidy given to people who are in that situation to help. Oh, uh, I think so. Like in-home help or someone who can come and, and, and help with some of those demands. Because yeah. I, I do think that, you know, for people who have to work, for people who have children and elderly parents, that is just a whole lot to demand of yeah. someone. There's got to be countries that do this better than we do. There, there are countries that do lots of things better than <laughs> we do. That's <laughs> true. So how did your mom get into this? Like she comes over here from Korea and for 30 years runs a, a senior citizen's home, right? Is that, did I say that right? Yeah. Um, I think it eventually became an assisted living facility, but it was, it was primarily seniors right before they needed nursing. Okay. So nursing. how do you try to, how do you show up in America and Fargo, North Dakota and do that? She ended up um, doing a lot of different types of jobs, working in a factory, um, waiting tables. And then she started working at this retirement home. And uh, eventually the owners decided that they were going to sell and retire. And they talked to my parents and said, are you interested in buying this as a business? She's like, you'll be my client one day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Move on in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they were interested. It was, a, it was a steady business. And you know, I always think of that as, as being the thing that put me and my sister through college. So yeah. we were really fortunate. It is a good business. I mean, you know, you're not going to run out of old people. Never. Never, never. You're always going to have uh, people who need that. Exactly. So were you happy growing up in Fargo? Yes and no. I mean, I look back and I think that it was a really good place for us in terms of, you know, clean air and good schools and we could walk to school and not worry about, you know. It's a simple life. It like, was. Like easy. Like I grew up in Milwaukee. It seems semi-similar. Yeah. You know? It was great in, in that sense. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's weird when you're the only diversity for, you know, miles and miles. Um, you know, there were... Every once in a while, there were a couple of um, Korean or Chinese graduate students who would come and study agriculture at the university, but they were graduate students. They were very transient, so they and their families would take off as soon as they were done. So there wasn't any sort of Asian-American population. There wasn't a population that was diverse while I was living there. This was the 70s and the 80s. Um, you know, so you have an environment like that. There are misunderstandings. Sure. Um, there are tensions. And that's when you call on your dad to kick some ass. <laughs> it was such a, that was such a weird part of it, having a dad who was a martial arts instructor on top of everything. But, you know, the weirdest part was, is that we started out in, in Fargo and we didn't have anything. We were poor. And my parents, they worked really hard and um, they had money by the time I, I went off to college. And I think that that was an additional source of tension as well. Um, 
you know, with with the community. Yeah, I think that there are some people who just didn't like seeing this immigrant family buying a house that was nicer than theirs or driving cars that were nicer than theirs mm. um, and having perhaps more than their kids did. So in addition to being Asian, it was also the fact that my family was a different class from a lot of the people that we were surrounded by. Huh. Like So race, class, nationality, all of it. Yeah. But it gives you, I mean, you learned a lot from it about... Absolutely. I mean, you know, does it, is it a, in a way, is it a good preparation? I would not be writing, I suspect, if I grew up anywhere else. Well, everything you're talking about shows up in your novel. Yeah, like, it does. Like thematically, you know, one way or another. It does. And I think it, it just taught me to be really observant um, because I was always noticing even, you know, I was probably like in kindergarten, but I would notice the way that people treated each other, treated my parents, treated each other, how it changed when they were talking to someone who was sort of at, at someone's station versus below or above. Um, these are the things that I started picking up on really, really early. I was going to say, like, helped. well, issues of class especially came to me much later. You Did were, they? Yeah, I was in college. I, I grew up, I was insulated from all that. Um, or, or just, <laughs> mm-hmm. or just like delightfully tuned out. But I just, I didn't, I didn't think of it, you know? It wasn't something that came up where I felt like this. I mean, and there were disparities, but it's like, I don't know. I was in, in, in Indiana for high school. My parents did well. You know, we were fine, but mm-hmm. like we weren't like the richest people in town. There were people who were, you know, had were significantly better off than we were, but it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to college, and then I met the real rich people. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit! <laughs> right, I went to Vassar as an undergrad. Yeah, you're like, oh, there's yeah. two different worlds here. Two very, very different worlds. Um, so yeah, but it sounds like you you were dialed into all this stuff early. I was. And I think my father was also uh, very attuned to the fact that there were people who really respected the fact that he worked hard. He built this business. He taught a lot of their kids. Um, But he was also aware of the fact that there were some who just didn't love the fact that he was making a really good living. And I think that's what that's what I don't know. That's like the ideal immigrant scenario. You show up, you work hard, you build a business. Exactly. Why would you resent somebody? I mean, you know, and it's a harder path. You know, you had to, I mean, did they even speak English when they showed up? Um, they both did, but you know, they had a lot to learn. Yeah. They had a lot to learn. So, I mean, like a lot more obstacles than most, but managed to do very well. And I think my, my dad was, you know, justifiably, he, he was proud of the fact that he was working hard and doing well. Um, I think he was aware that people had issues um, with the fact that here's this Korean guy, he moves into town, he makes money, better money than, than we do. Um, and he, I think my dad kind of thought, so what? So, he, you know, he would do things like buy a boat or buy a Mercedes and sort of drive it around proudly yeah. and say, if people don't like this, then screw it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a grandmaster. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Um this is going to sound like an odd question. This is probably maybe even an annoying question, but I want to ask it because the timing of it all and the fact that your dad's uh, taekwondo business flourished, you guys moved to the States in mid-1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there was a huge, as a kid, because that's my same generation. I was born in 75. And I remember when Karate Kid came out, like every kid in my school suddenly was like really interested in karate. It was great for business. Was it great for business? <laughs> yeah. Was there a karate kid boom? Like bump? I think there was a karate kid. There was definitely some like a um, boomlet. Yeah, yeah. There was some wave that my dad was able to ride because of the karate kid. But he was doing well before that. I think because he really sort of advertised 
um, his work as helping students develop confidence and, and discipline. He had a lot of really tough kids whose parents had sort of threw up their hands and said, I don't know what to do with this kid. Yeah. Um, and my father would, would train them. And a lot of them turned out much better than when they started. That's interesting. Yeah. So he had that to him as well. Like not only was he like really gifted at, at Taekwondo, but like he was a good, like he was good with kids emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. But he was, I mean, he, not by like hugging or, or, or being sweet to them. I mean, he was, he demanded a lot of them physically. So it, I always think of it as sort of like military school, but not, you know, but not military. I can see young boys responding to that. Especially if the guy teaching them is, is really good and can kind of walk the walk. Yeah, there was a tough love sort of element to it. And I think that's the reason why my dad stayed active for so long. I mean, he can bench more than my husband can. I shouldn't have said that. but um, <laughs> Sorry, husband. <laughs> but, um, you know, he was breaking bricks and doing all the work and, you know, running 10 miles a day. And I, I used to ask him, ask him why, why keep up with that level of physical activity? And he said that if he didn't do all the work that the students did, they wouldn't respect him. It's like, okay, yeah. well. Well, that's, but you know, maybe like a good uh, example for you as a writer from a the discipline perspective, because you do, I mean, it's, it's different, but the same. I yeah. mean, you know, and it doesn't sound like either of your parents were explicitly literary, but like, did either of them have anything? Can you, can you find in like the, you know, the back channels of your uh, genealogy, anybody who, who does this? Not really. I mean, my dad is, is a really big reader, but most of the texts that he reads are, are translated into Korean. Um, and, you know, my mom, you know, she's more of a pop culture kind of person. She's into movies. She's into music, um, television. I, I think from them, the thing that I learned most is that you're just supposed to work really hard, um, which kind of works sometimes from publishing and sometimes doesn't. Um, there's an element of luck to it as well yeah. that can be really infuriating. I'd like to hear you say that. <laughs> no, I do. I do because I think people overlook that or sometimes like sweep that under the rug when things have gone well. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a there's an element of humility to being like, you know what, you got to get a little lucky too. Yeah. You got to do the work, but there are a lot of people doing the work who don't get the breaks. And so you don't know why. And you got to, I think you have to pay homage to that. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the truth. I always think about people whose books were scheduled to launch like right around September 9-11. Yeah. You know, it's like there could be a masterpiece that was published right around that time, but we were all pretty preoccupied with other things um, in that moment. And we would never know it. It yeah. was just, what was that? I was, there was a book. God, I've, you know, my memory is so bad, but I was, I think I was talking to somebody on this show whose book was scheduled to launch right around then. Right. And it was, you know, and it could have been the great American novel <laughs> right. and you can't remember the name and neither can yeah, I. Yeah. There are Anything. a bunch of them like that. For like two or three months after that, especially it was just kind of sort of just, uh, everything got blotted out. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the scary thing I think about writing and publishing that you could, you know, tear your heart out writing something that's really great, but there's an element of good luck and an element of bad luck and, and I think some dumb luck as well. So, so you got lucky. Like, or, you know, you did the hard work, but you also got some breaks. Your, yeah. book, your book is in print. It's been well-reviewed. Um, like, how did that happen for you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, well, first of all, you wrote it, correct? I, I, I wrote it. I wrote it over um, a three-and-a-half-year period, but I've been thinking about it for probably a decade. And um, it took a while to get an agent. It took a while for the book to sell. And then suddenly I had to put my hands up and basically say, I'm a grown up and I'm used to sort of knowing my business. I don't get this business and I have to trust all these people around me 
Uh, it's unnerving. It's terrifying. And it's really, I mean, I'm a type A kind of sort. In many ways, it's great that I'm a writer because I control the page. But it's also kind of not great when I just have to say, like, I don't know this person. I don't know that person. I don't know what they do, but I'm just going to assume that they're really good at it. Yeah, I know. It's un- Yeah, that's the hardest part, uh, I think, is going out into the sales part of it because you have to relinquish all of your control. You have to play the waiting game. Mm-hmm. You have to ride that roller coaster, get the rejections oftentimes. Right. You know, it's, not, it's not pleasant until you get the yes and then, you know, you have your brief period of ecstasy and then a whole new set of anxieties like descends upon you. Yeah. It's just, it's always like some cyclical kind of anxiety about what's, what's the next thing and then the next thing after that. And I'm trying, I'm trying just to be the opposite of myself in this sense and just kind of go with it and be like, hey, this is. This is great. In the I'll moment, I'll talk to Brad Listy. I'll talk to Brad Listy in his garage. <laughs> Maybe this will work. Uh, so, okay. So, backing up a little bit, you eventually leave Fargo to go off to school. Yes. And you went to Vassar as an undergrad. Vassar, okay. So and that... then I was an Asian studies major. And uh, did you have fun there? I had a great time there. Like going from Fargo to Vassar. Oh, it was the best. Yeah, it was absolutely the best. And did you ever have a rebellious period? Not really. I mean, the way that I rebelled was, you know, through student government. I mean, okay. we, we took over like the student union. I mean, that was about the extent of my rebellion. But you didn't. You weren't like dropping acid or. No, although you could you could call my first marriage at you know at twenty two <laughs> sort of a form of rebellion. <laughs> okay, it's almost it's also like dropping acid in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I got married. I got engaged at twenty one um, after like two months of dating, and then I got married two days before commencement. Wow! Which looking back, I'm like that's that's insane. To your parents' chagrin, or were they supportive? Or both? They were mystified and supportive. Okay. And I think a lot of people around me at the time were mystified and supportive, but they figured, hey, she seems to know what she's doing. Got her shit together. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll buy this, you know, silverware setting from, <laughs> <laughs> you know, from the registry. But I mean, in hindsight, it's just young love, folly of youth or, you know, because 22, you know, back in the day, 22 was, that was when my mom got married, I think. Yeah. Well, she had a kid at 22. I mean, it seems insane to me now. Isn't that wild? But, um, you know, so 22 these days, and I think in our generation, that's young to get married. Yeah, and I think in 1994, that seemed pretty young. At a college like Vassar, my God, I mean, right. people, I think so many people held their tongues um, and just said, okay, uh, <laughs> you seem to want to do this, so yeah. go forth. Yeah. Um, and what else are you going to do when somebody wants to get married? I mean, unless they're really marrying somebody who's... Uh, unsavory you know or, or uh, unethical or something which right, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll, I'll ask you this did it, it didn't last long it lasted way longer than it, it should have it, okay. it lasted like just under the 10-year mark um, oh wow but probably should have ended within like the two-year mark to yeah. be honest yeah. um but you know like i said i i don't really rebel i'm i'm not a high risk kind of person so you know, once I had taken the risk of getting married, staying married was was the option that I chose to stick with. And you know, we went to graduate school together. We graduated from Vassar in a recession, um, so graduate school seemed like a good place to hang out. Yeah. Um, moved to New York together, and it just it had never really worked from from early on. Yeah. But we stuck with it just because it seemed like the safest thing to do. Well, and it's also, I mean, it is a commitment, right? I mean, you're trying to like honor a commitment you made, right? 
I, or no. <laughs> There's an element of that, I think. But uh, also, who who likes to quit? I don't like to that's quit. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. You know, like, okay, we did this. Let's, let's try to make it work. I think that's um, a noble impulse. But in some, you know, but some relationships, especially, you know, that young, you barely know who you are at 22. Right. Exactly. And you figure that out. I mean, did you figure out more about who you are as a result of that relationship? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So no regrets whatsoever. But boy, that was a long time, you know, to try and figure out something that I think we both knew wasn't working. Why am I talking to you about this, I by don't the know. way? I don't know. I mean, because it's formative. <laughs> you know? It informs your writing, I'm sure. It informs, you know, a person's sense of identity. It's one of the big things of your life. Yeah, I still can't believe I'm talking to you about it, All though. Right. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean that. Yeah, it just happens. Um, so, okay, so were you writing during this period? Like, and did you, like, when did it when did it dawn on you that you wanted to write fiction? Was it as an undergraduate? Was it as a graduate student? Was it after that? I think I've had moments all throughout my life going all the way back to childhood where I really wanted to write, um, but didn't take it seriously enough to do it for very long. Mm. And when I was an undergrad, I submitted a piece for a creative nonfiction class um, because at the time there weren't any fiction workshops. But I was excited about that. And then I got rejected. And then I just thought, well, that's terrible. Um, But maybe it means that I'm not supposed to do this. So I went off and went in a completely different field. And So wait, you had Asian studies as an undergraduate. Graduate school, you got your master's in. In public policy. Back then it was... It was just government, but it was basically a public public administration, public policy degree. And this was at? The University of Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Yep. And, yeah, I kind of forgot about the writing after that and uh, went and worked in the mayor's office in New York City. And Which was Giuliani or who was it? It, it was Giuliani. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was Giuliani. And I ended up leaving public service um, after someone once told me that I wasn't promotable after a certain level, basically because I was the wrong party in in the wrong administration. So that was a a good and clear message to sort of get out. Yeah. Because I was basically being told, it doesn't matter how hard you work. You're just not going to get past a certain level um, because of of which which party you're going to punch the ballot for. That's a great way to just like let the air out of somebody's heart. Just like be like, whatever, I'm done. Completely. Yeah. Completely. and then from there, I, I moved to not-for-profits and, and did a little bit of writing here and there. But again... Did you ever think you were going to run for office? No. No. I'm I'm not the kind of person who likes being at the podium. I can do it, but I don't gravitate toward that. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I'm struggling with after publishing this book, that I'm just not a very public person. I, I prefer to be far, far more private. Yeah. Well, it's like, I always say it's private exhibitionism because there's something performative about being a politician. There's something performative about being an author on tour, standing at a podium or mm-hmm. doing media or whatever it is, you know, you have to, but writers have it. They just like to do it in private. Exactly. <laughs> they don't want to like put it out there or like have to do it in front of a live audience. Like people often ask me like, you know, you should do this live. You should do a live show where you interview people. And I may, and I have here and there in the past, but having like a, a, you know, a huge audience of 47 people watching us mm-hmm. have this conversation would, I think, shift the dynamic considerably. Like yeah. it, it's different for me. Like I like to do this in my garage, just two people having a conversation. I think it's a, of the similar vein. 
Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think for me, um, there's so much comfort in knowing that it's just the two of us here. Um, and you can edit. Well, that's uh, assuming that I actually edit. <laughs> right. So, uh, so you, going back to when you decided to become a writer, like when did that happen? Can we pinpoint it? Was there something you read? Was there a moment in your life where you finally kind of came out to yourself that you wanted to do this? Or was it not that dramatic? I think it caught up to me very, very slowly. Um, I was working in a succession of jobs where I kept getting a bigger office and getting a nicer title and getting paid more money. But, you know, this is New York and, and you work those hours to earn that money. Yeah. So I found myself working at the New York Public Library and seeing writers who were in the Rosemain Reading Room and they were researching and they were writing and that was how they were spending their time. And I thought, that's amazing. It never really occurred to me that people actually made a run at it as a career. But I would stalk certain writers in the library and kind of follow them around and think, I want to do that. Who? Francine Prose. I stalked the hell out of Francine Prose. From like an year. average distance of, what, 15 feet? <laughs> How close to Francine were you? <laughs> you know, uh, close enough that maybe on, on occasion she might have noticed. It's like, oh, there's that woman who, who works, you know, in that wing. I'm picturing you like on the other side of like the book stack, you know, like peering through the books. Like, <laughs> sorry. No, but I, you know, I, I had read her work and I, I just, she was in residence that year, quote unquote. You know, they had a, a residence program. They didn't obviously live in the library, but they had offices there. This is the one with the lions out front in New York. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It, what like, a great place to get to go every day. Absolutely. It just, it felt like this extraordinary privilege and also an extraordinary form of torture because the longer I stayed there and the more I saw people like Francine, the more I realized I'm doing something that is a really respectable living. You know, my parents like it. They like that they know I, they like knowing that they can come and visit me in this building. But it's not the thing that I want to be doing. It's like so close, but yet so far. Yeah. But maybe that torture like applied the, the pressure you needed to give it a go. No? It did, but I'm so slow to act on those types of impulses. Like it took another like three plus years, four plus years. And, and I'd switched jobs at that point And I was at Lincoln Center again, working, you know, a regular diet of, you know, 14, 15 hour days, six or seven days a week. Who are you stalking there? Anyone? <laughs> no, I was trying to stay away from everybody. That place was like operatic and balkanized. And it was like the most fascinating, amazing project to work on in my late twenties. But boy, I mean, I, I was so happy to be able to say at the end of it, it's like, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, honestly, I, I wanted to write all through, all through my twenties and just sort of dabbled at it. And then when I was working at Lincoln center, I decided I would finally just shut up and sign up for a class. And, um, I took a introductory writing class and it met for about three hours on Saturdays. And no matter what was happening in my life, no matter what was happening at work, I went to that class. And it was the only thing that I looked forward to every week at a certain point. I mean, work was crazy. You know, you work with opera singers, like real life opera singers, you know, who have these big personalities. Um, you work with people who have really big egos and care about the work that they're doing. So that three hour block of time when, when, I was going to that writing class. That was for you. That was for me. Yeah. And I never missed it. And, you know, finally I started to recognize the pattern. You know, 
I've been wanting to do this for a really long time and, and finally I'm doing it and this is the happiness that I get out of the week. It's not my job. It's not going to my fancy office. It's not getting picked up in a car and taken to work every day. You know, it's not dropping money on clothes, you know, it, because I can, it was none of those things. It was sitting in that like dingy Tribeca, you know, community center writing and talking about writing. Hmm. Wow. And so then, then did you, in the, in the wake of that experience, did you start doing the uh, daily writing or carving out time to do it and getting into a discipline? No, of course not. <laughs> You're it's baby steps. Yeah, no, of course not. I mean, I would, I would do the whole binge writing thing like a lot of other people and um, produce work that I was kind of happy with and take it to workshop and it would get torn apart and I would work on it again. Um, I didn't develop the, the daily habit until probably like six years ago. Yeah. Like, so way after the fact. So when, when did you start working on shelter? In 2010. Okay. And so this was after that. I'm trying to piece together the oh, timeline. Oh, this was so far after that. Okay. 9-11 hasn't even happened. Yet. Oh, wow. So yeah. this is pre-9-11 you're taking this class. Um, yeah, this is 2000. This is right before 9-11. Um, and 9-11 happened. You're in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You remember, what, where were you that day? Um, like, what was your experience of it? Were you, was it very, uh, immediate and visceral or was it sort of like surreal? Like this is happening on the Island, but I can't immediately see it. And this is weird. And I'm watching it on the news or it was a really strange day, um, for, for lots of reasons, but it was unusual because the schedule was all out of whack. And I remember that that particular day at Lincoln center, we had Frank Gary, the architect and his crew, um, there on site because they were going to present these large models um, for the master plan design for Lincoln Center to the constituents. Um, and the constituents include the Metropolitan Opera and um, the New York Philharmonic and, and all the rest who who reside and perform on that campus. So it was a huge day. Everyone was tense. And um, I, took a, I took a car in and by the time I got there, one of the junior project managers said a, a plane hit one of the one of the towers, and you know this is really really like embarrassing and kind of shameful to admit. But I I remember saying something to the effect of, "Get the hell out of my office! Like we have other things to do right now." Um, and because you're thinking what a Cessna. Like, are you not, you know yes. what I'm saying? Like so many people, I think I, I, I thought of Cessna and in, you know, that's in the back of my head. And in the front of my head, I'm thinking we have all these trustees, all these donors. We have Frank Gary, who's presenting like this plastic helmet on top of the Mel Metropolitan Opera. Like this is the day that's going to go bad, yeah. badly. And I had no idea. Um, and then he came back in again and he's like another plane. Yeah. And then you're like, oh shit. And then the entire day goes from, from one thing to a completely different thing. Um, what was really strange about that particular moment was that everybody on staff had family. Um, and my executive director had a son who she needed to go track down at school and you know, everyone else left. They had someone to go to. And I technically did too. I just wasn't rushing. Um, so that was telling. So I hung out with Frank and, um, 
Frank Gehry. Yes. You spent 9-11 with Frank Gehry. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I hung out with Frank and, and his team, made sure they got to where they needed to go, um, you know, canceled all the meetings, although, you know, anyone who had a brain in that moment knew that they were canceled. Yeah, right. They didn't need me calling. We don't need to formalize this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was the last person to leave leave the office, and, and then I tried to make it home. Huh. So, do you have like some sort of weird voodoo power? Like, I find myself I'm like talking about things. I actually that I, do. I actually I, do have. I feel weird voodoo very power. weird talking about, but I, I I'm I'm gonna do it. Okay. Well, but it's a clarifying moment. Again, it's a formative thing, and I think it's formative for everybody, but especially for people who are in Manhattan that day. Yeah. So, uh, whenever I talk to somebody who was there that day, I always ask for their story because I find it interesting, and I think that it's, um, I don't know. It's like a, it's a shared event. It's a shared trauma. We all have that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have it more immediately when you're there, uh, just to try to tie it back. Like you in the, in the months and years leading up to nine 11 had started to make the pivot toward writing, right? You had started taking this class. You yes. had started to kind of, you know, realize that, Oh, this is the thing that's making me happy. This is the thing that I want to pursue. Right. And then something as traumatic as nine 11 happens. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound, uh, melodramatic about it, but th- did it have any kind of clarifying effect? Where like you know you sort of sort of think oh god you know life can change on a dime I should spend my time doing what I want to do did you have any of that I did but I was really slow to admit it it's only been within the past couple of years that I actually will tell people that I think I left New York and notice that I still use the word think I have to qualify in some way I, but I say that I think I left New York and started to write again because of because of what happened that day. Hmm. Um, it's always felt like a selfish thing to say, like in the midst of so much loss that I gained this clarity about my life. So I've just, I, I avoided that, that general topic of conversation for a really long time. But, you know, like I said, it's about pattern recognition and, and in nine months after nine eleven, I had sold my apartment, quit my job, applied and gotten into MFA programs, extricated from a marriage that wasn't working. I mean, that's, that's so a huge a, amount of life change to, to happen in such a short period of time. So obviously that event did something. Yeah. That was a good question I asked. Damn I feel it. like I <laughs> like I did it all just came together for me Damn right there. Uh, which uh, you went to Amherst for your MFA? Is that right? Yes, I did. University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Okay. And were you uh, weighing that against other options? Like why did you go there? I ended up going there because it was the only place that offered funding and, you know, funding funding was huge. It was one of those life decisions that I think people close to me, again, maybe like the marriage at 22, like people looked at this and thought, what the hell are you doing? But they didn't say it. They just sort of, you know, danced around the edge of it. But at the very least I knew, you know, don't go into debt for your MFA. Just, just don't do that. Um, and at that point, I, I had saved enough money that I, I could make that transition and, and make it pretty comfortably. Wow, good for you. Yeah. And did you love it? Did you love no. the MFA period or no? No, <laughs> I didn't. Why not? Oh, you know, there's something... I learned so much from it, and I hear and think about my my colleagues, my faculty members' criticisms of my writing that that was all really good and healthy. Um, and I think I met some of the, the best readers that I'll ever meet in my entire life there. I can say that all now, but in the moment, 
there's something really performative, I think, about MFA programs. Yeah. You know, everyone's workshop trying. tape, workshop oh, circles. God, you know, and also there's something at times in graduate school about people feeling like I have to be the smartest person at the table, and that pressure. I don't do well under that pressure. Um, I tend to be much more internal, and I didn't love it, to be honest. Um, but I learned a lot from it. But every day it just felt like another like annoying challenge. Um, so yeah, my experience was was very very mixed. My life completely changed because I did it. But in that moment, I felt often quite annoyed by it. Hmm. And you were working on shelter there? No, that was after that. <laughs> no, it's still. <laughs> I worked on short stories, um, like like a lot of people did, because they're just a digestible kind of format for the workshop table. Yeah. And um, I think I had my first inkling of shelter in 2004 when I was about halfway through the program, um, but didn't really pursue it in any way. I just sort of stowed it in a drawer. And my thesis for my program was was a collection of short stories that I tried to submit to agents when I graduated because I felt like that was the thing to do. Mm. And they were terrible. I mean, they were just terrible. There was a reason why they didn't get published. And I'm really, really glad that I didn't somehow get, you know, dumb lucky and, and someone said, sure, we'll do this because I just don't feel like that writer anymore. Yeah. They were it's experimental. Like, Thank God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm pissed that it even, you know, exists in the library. But Well, you know, but we all have that. Yeah. And everybody's got a, I think most writers have a complicated relationship with their early work, even their early published work. Yeah. Um, but then get me to where you start to write shelter. <laughs> and, and I should also say, um, you know, we haven't talked much about your reading habits, but your book seems to reflect a kind of uh, hybridization between genre and literary. Like, were you a reader who did that? Am I, is that a mischaracterization? Or are you a reader who read widely in both? I tend to read largely literary fiction and largely c contemporary literary fiction. Okay. Um, I never read that much genre and was surprised that the book was being positioned in that way. Um, I didn't mind it. I mean... As a thriller. Yeah. I, I didn't mind it, but that surprised me, you know, oh. even to this day, that, that people think that that's an appropriate label for it, but... I'll, I'll run with it. If someone wants to call your work a thriller, yeah, like, there's worse things they could call it. Exactly. And exactly. I think that maybe it's a testament to your plotting. You I, know, not everybody who writes in a literary vein is, is any good at plot. So maybe that's what you have. Hey, I'll, I'll take, take it. That. I'll okay. take it. <laughs> but it wasn't something you set out to do. No. Isn't it interesting how you can sit down to write a book, spend all these years doing it, and then have, you know, it goes out into the world and people start calling it by names that you were never expecting or assessing it in a way that's a complete surprise to you. Yeah, it really is. It's odd. Um, although I try not to read anything or listen to anything uh, about the book at all, because at this point, there's nothing I can do about it anymore. It's out there. So why torture myself? That's discipline. Yeah. Do you succeed 100% of the time? Do um, have, or do you have like family members or your spouse like being like, by the way? My husband is that person who is the voice of, by the way. Where, where did you meet him? Did, he, did you meet him at Amherst? I met him at Amherst. And, and he was in the PhD program when I started the MFA program. So we started and, and arrived in Amherst at the same time. A writer? Um, you know, he he is a writer. He actually switched tracks from the PhD program, got his MFA, and he now works in marketing and strategy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Smart guy. He's a terrific smart guy. Doctor? <laughs> no. No. Okay. Nope. Didn't finish no. the PhD. Did not finish the PhD. Chose chose to to move on and, and do different things. I know but I know a lot of people who do that. Yeah, it's a big it's a big uh, commitment to do one of those. 
It really is. It's a lot of years. But he's happy that he changed tracks and, you know, he is he is and, and will always be my best reader. Awesome. It's okay. So he re- he's your first reader. Yes. Are you writing to him when you are in the composition mode? Nope. No. So there's nope. not like one person you're trying to please. Is it just you? Are you thinking of a, of a readership? I'm not thinking of a readership at all, really. I'm thinking about those characters and, and trying to to make them feel as real and, and three-dimensional as I possibly can. Yeah. And, you know, this gets me into trouble sometimes, but I, I always overwrite characters. Um, there are hundreds of pages about Kyung and, and Jillian and some of the other characters in the book that never made the final manuscript, but they feel more flushed out. As you know. Flushed it's, out as people. Yeah. yeah. It's like the iceberg thing, the Ernest Hemingway thing, where like, you know, seven-eighths is below the surface. Like, yeah. it's all that work. Exactly. You got to know them. You know, like I know writers who will sit down and write like biographies of their characters, like mini biographies. Right. You know, Which, just, just to have a sense. And, and most of it doesn't even show up in the final product, but you got to kind of know their backstory. And Yeah. And in a sense, I did that by, by overwriting and putting them into scenes where, you know, I, I didn't really think it was going in, anywhere, but I felt better for, for knowing and putting them into situations where I could imagine them a little, a little better. Um, so I don't write for any particular reader. I, I, I write the stories that seem organic to the characters um, mm. and, and my understanding of them. Okay. So you, all that we've talked about, and then I'm considering your book, which deals with family, mm-hmm. uh, class, mm-hmm. public policy, in a way, yeah. the housing crisis, yeah. uh, you know, economic uh, disparity, income disparity, all that kind of stuff that falls under the uh, public policy umbrella. Yep. And, uh, you know, race and ethnicity is in there. Um, you start to see how all this kind of formulated. And this is a book you've been thinking about for a long time. Yes, definitely. What was the kernel? Like, you know what I'm saying? Can you go back and sort of map it? Definitely. Um, 2004, I'm in the MFA program and my parents are sort of on the verge of, of retirement. My dad is certainly, um, thinking about early retirement and I come up with this image of a man standing at his kitchen window, washing dishes, and he looks out and he sees his mother walking toward the house naked. And I thought that that was an interesting image. Um, so I played around with it for a couple of days. It's and, very edible. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, and I think that the joy and also the absolute torture of being a writer is trying to figure out, well, what happened to these people before this moment where she shows up and after um, sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it, it's just not happening and it wasn't happening in 2004. So I put it away. But my best guess is that because my parents were getting on in years and they were basically planning, um, for their retirement, I was trying to play around with the idea of, you know, what happens when you have to start taking care of your parents when they need you? What happens yeah. when mom shows up naked in the backyard? Right, like <laughs> naked, like a baby, perhaps, you know, yeah, there's yeah. something going on there. Um, that's interesting. Cause you know, you hear these things get started in different ways, but it really was an image. And that's a creepy, it's just it's a, an image. It, it is a, uh, there's something macabre and, uh, kind of horror fiction about that. That gives me the chills. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I could see it in a horror movie or something or some sort of like psychological thriller. And it could also be in a comedy. I mean, it can go in so many different yeah. directions, but I didn't know what direction I was taking it. So I just put it, I just put it away. And, um, 2007, do you remember a home invasion case in Cheshire, Connecticut? It was uh, oh, with the family. Yeah. Oh, my yes, I do. The, the daughters and the, yeah, husband, the, daughters, the husband survived. The husband was the husband. The, fa- the father was the only person who survived. Uh, I think about him. I, I mean, that's horrible. Oh, I think about him all the time. Yeah. 
that I think was the real. And and so for people listening who aren't aware, it was like there was a home invasion. These guys came in, what like raped and beat the wife and the daughters, and then burned the house down. Burned the house down. Um, you know, really brutalized the husband. And then they, yeah, they tried to flee, and uh, they were eventually caught. Um, but, you know, this was Cheshire. This was 90 minutes away from where I lived, and I was completely obsessed with that, that case and obsessed with the father because I didn't understand how one goes on um, yeah. with a life after something like that. Like, like that, that's something that horrifically violent. Um, you know, there's a guy in my hometown. I've never talked about this, but there was a guy in my hometown my freshman year of college. He was a year behind me. Uh, I didn't know him super well, but he was the nicest kid. I'd hung out and like shot hoops with him once. Like that was my, that's my memory of him. Mm-hmm. But he tried to buy pot from a guy, you know, I'm going to screw the story up, but he essentially tried to buy pot from a guy. I think he worked with him. This guy brought another guy over, um, to his house. His parents were out of town. Mm-hmm. He had a sitter who was like in his twenties, a young guy in his twenties. And, uh, these guys showed up to deliver the pot. They basically cased the house. Oh, they no. wound up tying everybody up, murdering them. Oh with, my God. Yeah. With knives. He, his little sister and the babysitter. And this was like in my hometown. Oh and my God. I was a freshman in college and like I was deep into, I was in Boulder, just like deep into the, the bong years or whatever. And so I was at a geographic remove. I also didn't know him super well, but I knew his girlfriend well. Right. And she was the one who discovered them. And just like, that's, you know, that, that never leaves you. And to know that something horrendous like that is even possible in a concrete way, yeah. whether it's like, it's close to you geographically, it's like right in your neighborhood mm-hmm. or you actually know, and, you know, you know, the people, uh, it changes your, your world. Doesn't it? Ugh, I yeah. mean, who wants to know that human beings can do these types of things to each other? How? Yeah. How could you possibly? I don't get it. I don't either. I, I really didn't. I think part of the reason why I spent so much time reading about this case and reading about this father was that I didn't get it. I just, I could not make it work in my head. Mm. Um, but you know, I think for me, 2007, that particular case was, was when I started connecting. Well, why does the mother end up naked in a field? Mm. Um, and I like writing books that answer questions, big questions. And for me, the question that that case sort of prompted was, you know, what if a similar set of circumstances happened to, you know, a different kind of family, like one that was actually really dysfunctional and one that actually had a, a history of violence um, going all the way back. See, this is this is what I mean. This is why your book gets called a thriller. This is good plotting. <laughs> it is, though, because it, it's like disparate pieces. You know, you're, you're fitting a puzzle together. Um I don't know. I, that, that just, it just strikes me. And it's like the way that this book kind of assembled itself in your mind. Mm-hmm. You had these concerns over your parents getting up in years and what it would be like to be a caregiver for them. That seems very literary. Mom shows up in the backyard naked. That seems very genre, mm-hmm. like in a way, you know, and then you have this macabre, <laughs> like triple homicide yeah. genre, but then like dealing with like the actual internal aftermath of that coupled with a dysfunctional family, you know, it starts mm-hmm. to, it starts to meld itself. So maybe you have both instincts. Yeah. I, I, I didn't see it or plan it from the start, but I, I can understand now 
um, why the book gets those labels. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about that. And it's also, you know, the book is also about class disparity within family. Yes. Which is an interesting thing because it doesn't get talked about all that much. But, you know, you have parents that did well. You, you've done well, mm-hmm. but now you're a writer. <laughs> <laughs> now it all goes downhill yeah, you know. from here. Do you feel, but like, is that something that's on your mind? Because it does, it creates tensions within families, um, you know, where you have parents who do really well, or you have parents who didn't do that well, but then the kids do super, super well. Right. That can be weird, too. Mm-hmm. Like, money fucks everything up. I, I completely agree. And, I like, inequality agree. puts distance between people. There's awkwardness. There's things that go uh, unsaid. The people who have money feel weird. The people who don't have money feel weird. Just, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. What's the answer? I don't know. I don't know. Put the I mean, public policy degree to work. <laughs> what do we do? You know, it's 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 strange teaching um, at a university and having students. And I look at these kids, and they're 18, 19 years old, and I think, oh my god, you know, you're gonna, you're getting this degree. You may be going into debt for it. Mm. Um, you know, what kind of jobs are out there for you? It's like they're all part of this generation that I think has a really big struggle ahead of them because it's hard to move out of mom and dad's basement because rent is so expensive. And it's hard to get a good job to actually pay off the loans that they've accumulated yeah. to get an education, right. to get that job it, to begin with. It's just very circular. It's complete bullshit that we make kids take on that kind of debt just to get their college degree. I agree with you. I feel like that's going to change. I hope it does. It's not even that expensive in the grand scheme of things to fix. And you know? it, it's unsustainable. I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's I, I, I go back to this anecdote when this topic comes up because it does every once in a while because I talk to so many people who have student loan debt mm-hmm. <laughs> who got their MFAs or, or at least who were, you know, new people who did. And um, But Ben Fountain, who was on this show a while ago, many years ago, um, you know, his dad was a university president or something. He worked mm-hmm. in academia. Mm-hmm. And he was recalling a conversation he had with his dad, uh, I think, as he was trying to explain this to me. But he's like, you know, we ask these kids, like, the logic is that they should be making an investment in their future. Like, by taking on this, you know, taking out this student loan and getting your education, you're making an investment in your future. That's Mm -hmm. the line we sell young people. Right. Who don't have the means but want to get a degree. Right. What we should be saying to them is we, as a society, are going to invest in you. Exactly. Because these people come out of college with all this debt burden. They can't be consumers. They can't buy houses. They can't do anything. It fucks the economy up. It fucks them up. Like why it doesn't, it's all wrongheaded. Exactly. So that's my stump speech right there. No. And I, I share the stump speech. I mean, we used to say not that long ago that, you know, mortgages and student loans are good debt, you know, because you get a house out of it or you get a college education out of it. But I think if, if anything, what I hope the last recession taught at least some of us is that there really isn't such a thing as good debt, um, especially if you can't afford it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I worry about, about my students. Like, you know, they're part of a generation that is, is it's getting increasingly harder to do as well, if not better than, than their parents. Is it ever going to get better? Like, you know, it's like these things, you know, the economy, who knows what, what makes it move, you know, and like what I'm, I'm no expert on the historical trends, but I do know that like post-World War II until the year 2000, like the second half of the 20th century was an unusually good ride. Our parents' generation mm-hmm. in America and I guess worldwide to a degree, uh, that was an unusually good wave to catch economically. It was. Do, do we ever get back to that? I mean, or is it just like that was a weird, ano- it almost seems like an anomaly. 
I don't know if it was an anomaly, but I think whatever it was, we're so far beyond, beyond it right now. I mean, I hate to say it, the numbers are really depressing, but at the height of the housing market crisis, we owed a lot. You know, we generally, we owed a lot in our mortgages. The royal we. The royal we. <laughs> and these days, now that we're in recovery, we still owe a lot. We may owe less in mortgages, but we owe more in student loans, more on credit cards, more in car debt. I want to say that we learned something. I'm not sure if we really did. And I don't think that the, that the industry, the banking industry, the financial industry um, has been sufficiently, I don't know, penalized is, is probably not the right word. But I, I think they're still sort of back to making money like they used to. Yeah. It's just a different vehicle. They'll find ways. If anything, Always. I mean, like if, uh, you know, debt bundles and mortgage-backed securities or whatever they were called, right? You know, mm-hmm. during the, the heyday. Yeah. It, that that is it, that is if nothing else evidence that when it comes to making lots and lots of money people will do whatever they have to do absolutely they will contort themselves they will create garbage products that have fancy names they will um work back channels you know and so it's hard to plug all those holes it and absolutely it, is i mean I think about the way that a credit card company makes money like they don't want me to pay the the thousand dollar bill back right away they don't make anything yeah. you know they only make it if i start chipping away at it you know 20 bucks at a time like that of course they want me to be in debt and stretch that debt out for as long as they can that's the only way they make a nickel and then like your pharmaceutical companies want you to be sick yeah everything's so fucked up <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> glad we figured that out yeah right god so um the <laughs> book drink yeah right here let me open the door. <laughs> I actually have a bottle of Malibu rum that's been there since the uh, holiday episode. That yeah. reminds me of college, actually. Yeah, my uh, my buddy Gene brought that over. And funny story, um, I keep it in here just as like a talisman or whatever, or like a funny reminder. But <laughs> my daughter, who's five, has seen that. I guess she, you know, she comes back here sometimes and she's seen it and asked me about it. And I was like, oh, you know, my buddy Gene brought that over. And then we were in a restaurant not too long ago. And it was like, you know, my family and I, I think we were eating at the bar. So we'll sit up at the bar to eat. And she was with us and she looks at the bar and she's like, daddy, look at that bottle of wine. We have that at home. <laughs> she thought it was a bottle <laughs> of wine. bottle of wine. It's so cute. It's not quite wine. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So shelter, uh, you finally finish it. I finally finish it. Um, I start writing it in 2010. Okay. And uh, finish it in 2012. And I know it's not ready in my heart of hearts. I know it's not ready, but I've burned through all of my best readers so I decide to put my toe in the water and send some query letters out. Um, the only smart thing that I did in that process was I, I sent them out to kind of a tiered list, like long shots, you know, people who were looking for, for new clients and then some people in the middle. And I kind of back pocketed the people who I was really the most interested in working with till the very end. Oh, um, I went through, it was the only smart thing that I did. I well, swear. Let's, let's trump that up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I knew it wasn't ready. And basically what I got back from those agents, that's not ready. You know, so I go back to work for about another nine months and then I do another round. And again, I feel like it's more ready than it was before, but nope, not ready. Wow. Um, were you still back pocketing your, your favorites or were you, I was because you know, every writer I think has like some intuitive, it's a gut thing. And my gut was telling me, not yet. Um, and then third round, third round, I, I felt like I'm getting really, really close. Like 
I, I feel like this this could get picked up, and it didn't, and that was pretty devastating. Because at this point, I'm I'm year three and change. Yeah. And, you know, finally, I don't have any. I don't have any other options. I, I don't want to make any more big changes to the manuscript. Um, I have to go to, to that back pocket list. Yeah. Um, so I did, and, and it turned out well. <laughs> so who's your agent? Can I Jennifer ask? Gates, um, Zachary Schuster Harmsworth, who is a friend of um, a colleague who I went to school with. Okay. Um, never read my manuscript, but it was always really encouraging that when I felt ready, talk to Jen. Um, and, and she was absolutely right. Wow. So it, it turned out that on that last pass, there were multiple offers um, to represent. And Isn't that interesting, though? Oh, God. <laughs> the work, you finally get the manuscript right, and they all, people notice when the work is right and when it's ready. Yeah, yeah, but... I mean, was there anything different? Did you have a better query letter, or was it just the manuscript, strength of manuscript? It was just the manuscript. It was just about tightening, and, you know... The, the structure, the plot was very, very similar to what it was the first time I sent it out. It was about, you know, it was mostly character work and, and trying to make sure that Kyung didn't come off as being too unlikable. Um, but I was really stubborn about that. So I was always sort of, you know, tampering things down little bit by little bit to see how, how much, much could, could I... Away with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I don't know how many more rounds I had in me. Um, yeah. I really don't. Well, it worked out. What about, the, what about the sales process? How quickly did it sell? Um, it sold in about, I think it was about nine months, maybe 10 months. So you had rejections there. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. Well, sometimes you, know, you hear different stories. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's like we went out and 36 hours later we had an auction and I'm like, oh, you. Fancy you. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> no, I was not one of those instantaneous. It, it took time and it took... Um, yeah, it, it took time. It, it took a lot of conversation to find the right people. You know, it's a pretty difficult book. And yeah. there were a lot of editors who rejected it and said, I really admire the manuscript. It's too dark. I don't know how to sell it. I don't know how to sell it. I don't know how to sell okay, it. Okay, so that's because that's, that's the real key point. Yeah. Because people listening might be like, you know, if something goes in 36 hours and there's multiple suitors, that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily an evaluation of a manuscript's quality. Uh, yeah, the, the manuscript is probably very good, mm -hmm. but it's also something that everybody knows or thinks that they can sell. Right. And if you have a novel like yours, which is another, it's a great case study for something that happens differently, where nine months go by, there are many rejections. Mm -hmm. But when it finally finds a home, it goes out, it is uh, reviewed very well and in the way that every writer would hope. And it's gotten a great reception. Mm -hmm. So do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, um, it just, maybe it's just a tougher book, you know, and, and it's a darker book and all the things that you were saying. And so, you know, it, it's harder to get a publisher to make that leap because it's a little bit scarier for them from a business perspective. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, you know, there are a couple of people, they didn't say that explicitly, but they came really darn close to saying, to saying basically just that. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know what to right, do. right, right. But you know, the book finally did go as a preempt. It was just about, you know, it hitting the hands of the right people at the right time and, you know, I, I think um, I think getting some brave ones who knew that they liked it and and courage wanted of, to at least try. Courage of their convictions. Right. And you know, and the timing cuz like, you know, in every business, in every publishing house or in most publishing houses, they probably have like X amount of resources devoted to things that they feel like are at the high end of 
marketability or saleability or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. like, at least in their perception. And then maybe they parcel away like a little bit of resources for like, we'll take a, we'll take it. We'll roll the dice on something. We'll mm -hmm. take a chance, you know? Yeah. And so then it's a matter of getting your manuscript to that person at the time at which they're ready to allocate that bit of resource. You know, that's the luck thing. That's the luck thing. The I was just thinking it. that. Yeah. So I'm glad it worked out for you. I am too. What did you do the day that you found out? <laughs> it was Columbus day. Okay. I remember that yeah, because right. I was off. You went My shopping. <laughs> yeah. Bought some, bought some, uh, you know, some new sheets. No, I remember this really distinctly because my husband and I, we were driving through town and we happened to see our friends um, walking down the sidewalk and people can't see this, but this pegboard that you have in your garage, yeah. our friends had found at a rummage sale, this gigantic pegboard that they wanted to install in their garage for their tools. So Joel and I are driving through, through town and we're like, is that John? Is that M? Are they carrying a giant pegboard and why? <laughs> And um, they were really close to their house, so we decided to stop by and say hi. And um, my phone started ringing when we were just parking the car. And I said to my husband, you know, I'll be in there in a second. And it's Jen. And that's when I got the news. And by that point, I had been in the car for so long, you know, staring like very intently with a frown at my lap that Joel and John and M came outside of the house to just sort of check to make sure that I was okay. Um, and I finally came out, and I think I was just stunned. I yeah. mean, just I, keep in mind, this is when I'm 43 years old. Yeah. I started writing in earnest when I was 30. I don't think if anyone would have told me how long it would have taken, I'm not sure if I would have done it. But at this point, 13 years have passed, and I'm basically like doubled down on the bet. Like, what the hell else am I going to do with my life? I've mm -hmm. already altered the course of it so much. I can't quit. Right. Yeah, you know, so I think I did what anyone in that situation would have done. It's like I sort of started walking toward my husband, and then I just started bawling, <laughs> like <laughs> unintelligible bawling. Like I, I just, I, I think that was like thirteen plus years, kind of. Yeah, just uncorked. Yeah, it was, it was a sight. That's it was, awesome. It was definitely. A I sight. just got choked up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, did you go out and celebrate? No, that was the celebration. That was it. I think that was sort of the celebration. Uncontrollable and sobbing and some pegboard and exactly on, on the front lawn of our friend's house, like with neighbors, <laughs> like wondering like what, the, like and Joel had thought like my father had died or something. Like he just he thought it was something really really terrible. Yeah. Um, so for those of you out there aspiring to be writers, this is what the end game looks like. <laughs> Success uh, basically looks like the death of a parent. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, uh, I congratulate you. Thank you. You know, and are you working on another thing? Is I it, am. Is it I'm, an ugly question to even ask that or no? No, it, it's fine. It's just, I don't have any good answers right now. I'm still trying to figure it out, but you know, balancing prom promoting a book and also starting a new book. Take your time. Enjoy the promotion. You know, you, as much yeah. as it's not you and you don't like the performative aspects of it. Um, I just said this on uh, like a recent episode. There's something celebratory about it. Make the rounds. You know what I'm saying? Like try to enjoy it because as writers, it takes so long, especially writers of long form fiction, you're writing mm -hmm. books, it takes a long time. Yeah. You don't have too many celebratory moments. Most of it, you're just kind of in your office, like grinding away. Right. So, you know, try to have some fun. I am actually. <laughs> I, I, I am. Okay. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. I just, I'm encouraging you. No, it's good to have these voices in my head because I am the kind of person who could very easily put my head down and say, okay, on to the next thing. Yeah. Like what's next? Yeah. So just, you know, enjoy Los Angeles. Yep. Like you're next to what, 16 hours here or exactly. whatever. Then on to the next city. 
San Diego. San Diego. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it's been such a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for uh, stopping by, and I wish you luck. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys. Jung Yoon, her novel, Shelter, available now from Picador. You can find Jung online at jungyoon.info. She's also on Twitter at jungyoon71. And she's on Instagram. If you'd like to peruse her collection of private photographs. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget, please don't forget, this podcast has its own app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get the Other People app, and then if you're uh, feeling uh, excited about it, you can sign up for a premium subscription, get access to all the episodes. More than 400 and counting. You get 50 for free, and then if you want uh, to get at the deep archives, you sign up for premium. It's uh, 75 cents a month. Great way to support the show. If you'd like to email me to uh, complain, the address is letters at otherppl.com. You can also uh, sing my praises. Tell me a story. Wine. I want you to know that I drank a lot of caffeine immediately before sitting down to do this, late in the afternoon, which I don't normally do. Uh, Meaning I don't normally drink lots of caffeine late in the afternoon. I typically do this late in the afternoon slash in the evening. But today, I was feeling a little sluggish. Last night was weird. Last night, uh, I fell asleep on the couch. Like, woke up disoriented and, you know, at around midnight, went into uh, the bedroom, fell asleep, and was talking to my wife about it, and I was like, yo, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you wake me up? And she's like, I tried to. You told me to leave you alone. I have no recollection of this. I have two, I had two glasses of wine with dinner. Like pretty, uh, pretty easygoing evening and just fell asleep. I guess I was exhausted. But then at the same time, I'm like, uh, something, did something misfire? <laughs> did I somehow slip into a blackout? Am I all right? Please remember that Robert Penn Warren died of prostate cancer. And that Moliere died after uh, bursting a blood vessel in a convulsive tubercular coughing fit and choking on his own blood. That's all for now. Jesus Christ. That's, uh, poor Moliere. That's awful. That might be the worst one I've ever read. Uh, but that is it for now. Thanks, you guys, for listening. As always, I appreciate that. Thanks to Jung Yoon. Go get her novel, Shelter, Support, a Debut Novelist. It's a terrific book. And uh, thanks to Picador for publishing it. I'll be back next week with more. Uh, I know you're on pins and needles waiting to hear who it's going to be. Who is it going to be? Oh, my God. The mystery. (laughs) 